Fika with Anika. The word fika is used as both a noun and a verb and is derived from the Swedish word for coffee. The Swedish coffee break is a moment to literally leave work behind. Taken at three in the afternoon, it's not a strategy for multitasking or for fitting in another mini meeting. It's a chance to relax in the company of colleagues or friends. The key is to pause your day. So brew up some coffee, grab a seat, and embrace Fika. And here we are again. It's Fika with Anika. I've uh, brought my guest in again. Uh, Lucian Toma is here. He's uh, now a ANZA native as of the last year. He mm -hmm. is a permaculture specialist and um, all-around cool guy. And so with that said, uh, welcome back into the studio. I'm so glad we're here, and um, I'm looking forward to um, share some share some value with people of the area. Um, yeah. So uh, our last interview, unfortunately, we did have some technical uh, <coughs> difficulties with the sound. Um, maybe we want to just go back again to the beginning. Tell me again about your upbringing in Romania and... and uh, uh, your grassroots. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just so naturally pushing me in this direction of, uh, of permaculture. I teach at the college level, also teach a lot of courses from ANZA here from the farm. We just finished a two-week uh, intensive course on permaculture design and um, also do a lot of designs for, uh, for schools, for um, homeowners, um, other public spaces, and also a lot of other related uh, related work with all the concepts in permaculture. And um, I always reflect on this fact on um, almost like what else could I do with my life considering my upbringing. So I, I grew up in two homestead environments in Romania. One was a suburban, um, a suburban homestead. Uh, grandma and grandpa on dad's side, they uh, we had a. Um, apple orchards and all kinds of other fruit trees they raised chickens uh we had a, a pig here and there maybe two sometimes turkeys um grew most of their vegetables um lots of grapes too in a very small place actually in a very small area about um i would say two two-thirds of an acre um, oh, and yeah. just for their own use, or were they, yeah, or did yeah. they do farmers markets? No, we didn't do it. So this was actually, um, you know, I was born in 1982, so we were communist until 1989. So this was really sustenance, kind of like food. But people really bartered. Um, so it's it's so amazing how on the street where 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 I grew up with with these grandparents, and then I also grew up in another environment in a um, village up in the mountains. I'll, I'll share about that next. It was so amazing that uh, it's almost like people planned this, but it kind of happened naturally that people on the same street, um, they had different kind of uh, skills and knowledge. So, for example, grandpa and grandma. Grandma was a seamstress and grandpa was a butcher. And then they grew a lot of stuff, right, like fruit trees and, and grapes and lots of uh, different type of vegetables and um and herbs and other people on the street some people were uh, raising pigeons other people were raising ducks other people were um, um growing certain specific types of of fruit trees so grandpa was really good at making um wine 
and uh, another family just two three houses from us were making really good uh, brandy from from plums and from pears um, yeah so it, it was so amazing to to kind of like grow up in in that environment where there was no waste coming out of the house um, very you know very little things kind of bought from the store I mean the stores were pretty empty during the communist time but then even past that, you know, with all the abundance of package stuff. So um, the community was really tight-knit. I mean, people would, would gather in our house and play, you know, chess. Uh, and then this game they uh, we called Remy. Um, it's something kind of like, oh, I completely forgot what the, what the card game is called. But anyway, people would gather and, and, and talk about all kinds of things, including politics, which was like very, very uh, dangerous to talk about in those times. And uh, there was always a barter. I mean, you would see, you know, one barrel of wine coming out of the gate, one barrel of brandy coming back in, you know. Um, ten pieces of smoked bacon going out, you know, three big wheels of cheese coming in. So um, really, really beautiful uh, kind of community, um, you know, an underground black market of 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 trading that uh, was happening right under the noses of, of this really suppressive and controlling government. So was it actually illegal to do bartering? Um, well, I, you know, as I kind of like grew up and, 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 and came here to the United States and uh, I went to school for many years, got all kinds of um, academic uh, credentials, I've learned that um, the government was very aware but they wouldn't want to suppress that too. I mean, they already know. They already knew. Like, man, we're suppressing, you know, freedom of expression. We're suppressing all kinds of ways of being. We're controlling so many aspects of people's lives. If we take this from them, they're gonna like go berserk, right? They're gonna, you know, um, they're really not gonna like it. So, um, so yeah. I mean, there were a lot of. Uh, controls and there were a lot of um, you know inspections at people's homes especially people that had animals and and and, and gardens um, unannounced and, or um, unannounced of course because nobody you know I mean the idea is that <clears throat> there was private property and business however the government still had the the right to to come in and inspect at any time you know, we don't know what you guys are doing. What do you guys, you know, what's, do you have too much? Let us take some and distribute it, right? Oh. So, um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, including some of these government uh, officials or, or government people, like, you know, the police, you know, officer, the the mailman, the, um, I don't know. Like, um, of course, all the other institutions were state-run, right? The schools, the hospitals, and everything. I mean, they were part of this uh, black market exchange. And then the beautiful part is that, you know, the, the stores were empty, um, yet there was so much activity and people were, like, healthy and people had good foods to, to eat. I mean, it was just so amazing what was happening in the fall time. For example, um, lots of... Uh, you know, my grandma had a lot of sisters. My grandpa had uh, brothers and sisters, and they would all come together in the fall. And we would, 
you know, do all kinds of preserves from the from the garden, right? So we would do like, you know, tomato sauces and I don't know, apple jams and plum jams and then um uh the wine. Um, you know, processing some some meats too, um in the late fall and then later on in the winter too. So it was so beautiful that, you know, it started at our, uh, this homestead, and then we would go and travel and help, right? Like everybody had, had a role, you know, like as a kid, I remember just like all the kids were naked and jumping on the grapes or something like that. And, um, you know, listening to all kinds of songs. And it sounds like, it sounds like some of the stories that you would hear, um, you know, from, um, you know, Native Americans or something like that. But um it it happens in so many cultures and possibly even more beautiful up in the mountains i mean this was like really remote this was this were this was where i spent quite a lot of time too uh this was remote about 2 hours away from the town where my grandparents lived and then later on um myself with the parents and um this is on my mom's side and it was only grandma so uh grandpa died early i think it was like i was a year old and she was managing this homestead, like, just like this woman, um, short, I don't know, I don't even know if she's like five foot. Uh, but I tell all my students these days, like, I can bet all my money that she would take you down an arm wrestle. Because all of her life, she's been working the land. All of her life, she's been carrying water from the, from the well, uh, from the communal well. So that was really a beautiful environment, too. Um... You know, up in the mountains, it was like cooler. We had a river going through the village. I mean, all the kids being there, you know, by the river all summer. The parents were so happy that there was something to do. Uh, just all of us kind of like gathering, running the hills, sometimes running from the bears or the wolves if it was like too late in the season or right. too early in the season. Um, super fun. And um, she uh, had some some garden around her house the same possibly not even an acre uh, she had chickens she had rabbits so she had a lot of rabbits she she was known actually in the village for uh, being a good rabbit breeder and then um, you know when it was time to process the the rabbits my uncle would come in town and he would make the what do you call them the pelts right the oh okay yeah she, he would he would do that so a lot of people knew that but she was really known for um three other things so one she made an amazing plum brandy so she had like this separate piece of land that was um you know possibly like i don't know 45 minutes of walking so she was going there quite a lot of spring and summer so she had this big uh plum orchard and she made an amazing amazing plum brandy so that was not only something that she uh, well, she exchanged for a lot of different other things, but she also paid labor. So, you know, all the young men um, of the village, they loved working for Brandy, you know, like, and they would want, like, sometimes, can we have a little bit in advance in the morning? He's like, she would say, like, hell no, you're, you're working first, then you're getting drunk. And, um, you know, and then she, it, there, there are so many amazing stories of, of uh, her saying, like, I can't give you any, you know, this is going to be like about a five-day task. Um, and I'll tell you immediately what that was all about. It's a five-day task. I can't pay you until you're completely done. Because if I give them to you anything tonight, you're not going to come tomorrow. You know, right. you're going to get drunk. So 
Um, yeah, I mean, she managed that so right. And then the second thing that she did, uh, she uh, was making uh, rugs and blankets and even like clothing items like um, sweaters and um, all from wool because the, the village was... Um, you know, a lot of people had sheep, so a lot of shepherds around, and 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 she raised sheep before she became a widow. Um, so she made blankets. Um, so the cool thing about that is that, for the longest time I remember, <clears throat> uh, spring, summer, and fall, there were like specific times, and even winter sometimes there were specific times where she would take me in the forest and she would show me specific uh, type of plants to pick. And would take them home and she'll make natural dyes from that. So that's why she was very known and everybody loved her blankets and all of her, um, you know, all, all kind of like textile that she would make with, with this natural dyes. I actually have some of those blankets and she's still doing them. Like she just can't stop. You know, like winter she'll be in her little kitchen with a fire going, basically twisting the wool to make it into string. And then there's a spring she would go and get some... Um, some of these plants, she'll make that the dyes uh, go down to the river and bring that water. She didn't need like fresh water from the well for that. Um, she just used river water and just made beautiful, beautiful textile. And then, as it kind of like warmed up, um, she would bring this. Um, uh, I completely forgot what it's called in English. Um, that she would basically put the string through and then just push oh, it. The loom. A loom, exactly. So she would do that. So that was like big part, while also taking care of the gardens, taking care of the animals, taking care of the... And family. Yeah, and the kids, yeah. So <clears throat> where I wanted to get with this, the story was so beautiful about this black market um, that was trading goods for labor and then goods for goods. Um, goods for services um, the beautiful thing about this is again the stores were so empty between 1982 and 1990 um, the communist government was trying to pay a lot of their debts to the West and Mother Russia <laughs> so there was an austerity um, uh, what would you call it an austerity program to, to kind of export as much as possible so people were suffering from that because the stores were empty and um, the the people that had homesteads up in the mountains and, you know, in the suburbia, they were the ones that were supporting, you know, the food. They were the ones that were making it possible for people to actually get good nutrition and um, all kinds of medicine, too. I mean, that's another thing that you couldn't find in, in our uh, society at that time. So um, lots of amazing traditional medicine, uh, lots of good kind um you know i don't know if people smoked it or not but i'm sure that they made all kinds of teas yeah so so um yeah it's it's so beautiful what happened in this system and um i've been talking quite a lot and, and been doing like this this short little lecture about creating this type of like underground black market like in our community right now because even though the stores are not empty if you actually try to sift through what's good and what's not good like you would take 90 percent of the stuff that you would find in a regular grocery store off the shelves as non-edible and something that's actually not good for us so 
um, you know, how beautiful would it be to to be able to have a system like that so we can eat good because that's so important. And that was like big part of, of uh, our community. And that's what I'm all about. Right. I'm all about being able and, to. And, right. And of course, your grandmother at the time, the way that she was uh, either feeding the animals or growing the vegetables, mm -hmm. she was just using, uh, you know, <coughs> traditional methods yep. of what we now call organic. Yeah. Uh, and people pay a lot of money because it's done organically and not, uh, but because she wasn't doing monoculture. She mm -hmm. had a variety of things. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can understand how you mm -hmm. developed your interest in permaculture. Yeah. So yeah. let's just take a short break here. Mm -hmm. So uh, please stay tuned. We'll be right back with uh, Lucian Toma. Pika with Anika. Listening to KOYT LP Anza, California. High Country 4-H is looking for new members ages 5 to 19. 4-H is a youth-driven nonprofit organization. We have many classes called projects, including radio, sewing, horse, rabbit, stem, and more. 4-H is always looking for more projects and project ideas. High Country 4-H meets every month on the third Wednesday. The meetings are held at the Anza Community Hall at 6.30 p.m. High Country 4-H would love to see you there. For more information, please contact Allison Rink at 951-663-5452 or email to email address ALI9591 at AOL.com. High Country 4-H is holding an event called Anza's Got Talent. We really hope you come and audition. The auditions will be at the Little Red Schoolhouse, and the dates are January 26th and February 2nd and 9th. All of the dates will be from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. The acts slash talents need to be appropriate for children, family-friendly, non-political or religious, and rated G. The entry form can be found at Lorraine's Pet Supply and Marketplace Cooperative, or you can contact Anza's Got Talent email at anzagottalent at gmail.com. That is A-N-Z-A-G-O-T-T-A-L-E-N-T -T -E at gmail.com. And we will happily send you the entry form. The date for Anza's Got Talent will be April 4th. Please enter and audition. We hope to see you there. The Coyote. Listen to it. Welcome back to Pika with Anika. Thank you for coming back. Uh, we're, I'm here with my guest, Lucian Toma. We're talking about uh, permaculture and, um, and growing up in a... Uh, Earthbound community as you did, yeah. and and how you came here. So let's continue. You know how beautiful would it be to to be able to have a system like that so we can eat good because that's so important and that was like big part of of uh, our community and that's what I'm all about. 
right. I'm all about being able and, to... And, right, and of course your grandmother at the time, the, the way that she was uh, either feeding the animals or growing the vegetables, mm -hmm. she was just using, uh, you know, <coughs> traditional methods yep. of what we now call organic. Yeah. Uh, and people pay a lot of money because it's done organically and not... Uh, but because she wasn't doing monoculture, she mm -hmm. had a variety of things. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I, I can understand how you mm -hmm. developed your interest in permaculture. Yeah, so <clears throat> that's, um, that's a, big, um, a big focus of my work, um, you know, to balance. There is, there is a specific standard in, in permaculture design courses. Um, it's really beautiful what what these Australian gentlemen have gathered from around the world and put together in such a beautiful um, in such a beautiful understandable way you know ethics principles um, you know soil water food systems really it's it's knowledge from around the world just just put together in a really um, comprehensive kind of like structure so. There's I'm not familiar with the, what you're talking about, with yeah, the so, Australian yeah, philosophy so, here. Yeah, so, so permaculture uh, um, oh, was the, first... Oh, the beginnings. Okay, yeah, permaculture, yeah. The, when they coined the phrase. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. So, I, uh, I yeah. had a moment there. Yeah, so yeah. Bill Mollison putting yes. together the, the first kind of like books on it and the structure and then like, you know, some other uh, students of his and I think like it's evolved quite a lot. Yet he did an amazing job in the in the uh, permaculture designer's manual, which is like the Bible of permaculture. I mean, you read that, you're like you're 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 really entrenched in like different climates of the world, different techniques, and like then it takes you. It it still brings you back to the principles and the ethics that they so beautifully uh, put together. I mean, amazing visionary. So, you know what's what's been going on is that. Um, a lot of these PDCs, permaculture design certification courses, have been <clears throat> taught in kind of like a 72-hour format. And uh, I realize right now after, let's see, after leading permaculture courses for the past five years, I'm realizing that those 72 hours are not enough for somebody to really get uh, the depth um, or, or, or really be able to grasp even from each part of the the curriculum to grasp like the very important parts of it. So um, I see some very smart permaculturists out there doing amazing work, doing like advanced courses. And this is kind of like what I'm stepping into to like have people be in this realm for a longer period of time and be able to, to really grasp. And then there's that part of the invisible structures in permaculture which has to do with community um, you know financing you know at the edge of like traditional and like new age um, and I put I put a quite a lot of emphasis on that um, I have a lot of people that come and take my courses with the intention I'm gonna do my garden well if you are gonna come and take my courses not about your garden <laughs> and and I know that there is this message set out there that every single one of us can do a little thing, you know, there is this movement of like, you know, um, reduce your waste, beautiful, thumbs up, uh, thumbs up, eat local, mostly plant-based, uh, meatless Mondays, you know, um, you know, and definitely thumbs up, beautiful, 
Um, and I also, I, I think that at this point and where we at, um, you know, it doesn't matter if you believe that we are at a critical point or not. The facts are there about the degradation, the ecological degradation of our planet. The same thing with the conversation around climate change. There's like so much to be discussed about that. Um, the, the, the important thing is like, how can we look at what we've done so far and how can we as individuals and as a community today put systems in place so that, you know, our species can continue that so that our, I don't know, society can evolve and go to all these planets that we've been trying to go since, you know. Um, so I, I do put a lot of focus on that, on, on the social aspect so that we can, we can understand that, okay, you want to do your garden. Well, what's your garden doing beyond for you? Um, you know, so it's, it's kind of the same idea as like that. When you reduce your waste, you're, you know, contributing to a bigger, to a bigger, you know, you're having a bigger impact out there in the world, right? Like stop using plastic bags and all that i believe the same like that a, that a garden can can do that so not keeping it just for ourselves right well i think uh you know uh, gardening and permaculture are two separate things mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. gardening is yeah you have six tomato plants and some carrots mm -hmm. but you don't have maybe the chickens or the goat or the uh the fruit orchard or uh you, you know all the other things mm -hmm. and you don't have bioswales to capture water mm -hmm. in a garden. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So unless you're Martha Stewart, maybe. But, yeah. But. Yeah. I mean, and, and the pollinator tractors and right. the, you know, the, the mulchers, the nitrogen fixers, the dynamic accumulators. It's, um, I mean, I've, I've done a lot of landscape design and, and installs and it's just so amazing the journey I take people through when they say I want a garden and I'm actually giving them an, an ecosystem, you know, when they're done. And it's just so beautiful that people like get that. Yeah. I mean like, um, you know, what happened to that society in, in 1990, uh, 1989, we had this, like the first actually televised revolution in the world. I mean, there were songs about it before that, but this was the first televised revolution, um, you know, in the world, uh, the, the president was and his wife were taken, you know, out of their space and put on the wall and shot on Christmas Day. Uh, very, very significant, significant too for a nation that uh, was a Christian nation and was like the Communist Party was suppressing that so much. And um, you know, I lost my train of thought here. Just, just kind of like. Well, your influences and how, why you became... Yeah, so, so what happened, like, in the 1990s, this idea of growing your own food, and again, you know, gram, both grandmas, both families, you know, they were managing soil and building soil and composting without calling it that. It was just, like, how it happened. They were conserving water and materials because that's the way it was. I mean, grandma was... Grandma up in the mountains was so funny about telling us to bring her uh, jars and bottles and she was so excited you know uh, to bring her you know empty coca-cola bottles for example because you know what she did right she put her her brandy in there or she put all kinds of like you know tomato juices and 
all kinds of syrups. But back to like kind of like that area of the 1990s, um, there was this push, this cultural push um, that was making this idea like you're backwards. Like you are a peasant, you are from the past and you are backwards. And, you know, there is like, look at the West, there's so much abundance and you don't have to like struggle so much, right? So this is when, you know, you know, more of the monocrop agriculture showed up. That doesn't mean that we didn't have it during the communist times. I mean, they were growing a lot of corn and wheat and, um, I mean, you wouldn't be able to, to, to sustain a nation with all the bread needs if you had everybody trying to grow wheat, for example, because mm-hmm. it was so needed. Um, so there was this push in the culture. I mean, all the television, all the, you know, the abundance that we were seeing from the outside, you, you know, it was missing something. You wouldn't see the farmers. Um, and I, I feel that it wasn't like, misinformation it was missing information because like the in the western countries there is a lot of people that still work like that like small farms like in france in germany in italy in spain um but i think even there was like something happening like uh, a lot of that communication like that missing communication i don't even think it was done on purpose or anything i just think it just naturally kind of like people started to think like this is the way right like the farmer is somebody that's out there does things and we have this amazing society you know that we do more important stuff well guess what that's pretty important (laughs) to to grow food and um you know and and so i kind of like got turned off and i wanted that shiny beautiful dream and um you know i went and i lived in italy for a while and then I came here to the United States and, you know, that 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 passion and that way of growing up, like being like attached to the land and to the soil and to the community. Oh, I I believe that the biggest part of all of this was community because this is how we learned from one another. You know, like people will, will meet, like in the village especially, we had a lot of these type of meetings and celebrations which kind of like seem like very pagan like like from 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 a past kind of like belief system and, and culture where people gathered in circles and they said hey i just saw your squashes they were so big you know what did you do like how did you get that done you know it's like so so people learn it's it's almost like permaculture courses were happening all right. the time it's like, well, I use this and I use that. And it's like, but don't worry, don't grow that. I know you're very good at cucumbers and we'll trade or something like mm-hmm. that, right? So, um, so, you know, I came here and I got like pretty disconnected from that. I really dreamed myself in a brand new BMW with shiny rims and in a suit and tie. And that's kind of like what my family was also pushing on me too. I mean, it, it got not so much my grandpa my grandparents i mean my grandmas were always saying it's like you better know all these things like no matter what happens in the world you'll be successful like when you know how to grow your food how to preserve your food how to process your food how to talk to people um you know be respectful big thing on respecting the elders why because the elders had all the wisdom and all the knowledge right it wasn't like some kind of like selfish kind of say respect your elders because i'm your grandma it's like you know, it just made so much sense. So, uh, so I, you know, here in the United States, I aimed at that, and 
you know, I definitely was on a good track. I, I went to a community college. I could barely speak English, so I went to a community college. And then I, I got a scholarship to play basketball, and I went to Hawaii. And I got a bachelor's in international relations. And I my my next move was to get a master's. Um, you know, a lot of my studies were, like, on military studies. So the master's would have been a master's in diplomacy and military studies. But then I took an ecological economics class. And I was like, wow. I guess, you know, that's not... Like, I, I really, it really took me to to see that, like, you know, if I was to pursue diplomacy and military studies, then, you know, change in the world or, you know, the international level. I mean, I had this desire. I saw, like, all these changes in my culture, and I wanted to do something about it, both from the past and kind of, like, what was happening, you know, after that communist time. And, um, you know, I was thinking diplomacy and military studies what kind of work will i have that's going to be like some type of high level and it's like top down kind of change but then i took ecological economics and i realized wow this change can happen both from top down and from the grassroots like people can really take power in their hands and that really reminded me of of the culture that we had in that suppressive kind of system and i and i didn't i didn't think or i don't think that there is a suppressive system here or anything like that um, there is definitely, you know, people, there's a lot of people and I encounter a lot of people that are struggling even in this kind of abundance and opportunity and freedom and all of that good stuff. So, um, I wanted to be part of that. So I pursued a, a, a master's in sustainable development and a master's in uh, global leadership with, um, you know, with that kind of like, um, direction of looking at sustainability uh, looking at regeneration. Um, so I pursued that way and it was great cause I was in Hawaii. So that culture is, was, it's, it's so amazing. I mean, Polynesians, you know, they have their own like history and Hawaii is like all the way 12,000 miles away from my home country. And the cultures had so much in common. It's like, how is that possible? Right. And I was looking at it, and it's like, you know, similar histories. Like, if you if you make, if you draw some comparison, like, it's really similar histories. The only thing is that in Hawaii, you had one race kind of, like, changing uh, another race's culture. In our in our country, we had, you know, an idea that, that we're suppressing people, right? Um, but there were so many beautiful things. I mean, I lived in an all-Hawaiian neighborhood, and I was the only Haole there. <laughs> And how people talked about the ocean, how people talked about the the forest, the birds, the animals, the the mothers, the grandparents. Uh, I mean, it reminded me so much, and I and I feel like I got even more education from that than from like this, like you know, being in a master's degree. So it was really beautiful to see that and to see like, wow, it's so important to preserve these things. It took me to this idea that you know, my grandparents and my family had this kind of like knowledge and skills and a culture of self-preservation and and being able to survive and actually thrive under like really suppressive and and hardcore you know societal and economic and, and and political conditions yet they weren't ready for the type of change that happened in in the 1990s uh they weren't ready they didn't see the world out there they didn't have the kind of like knowledge philosophies that 
you know, like knowing what's going to happen when all these ideas from around the world and all these people like you're 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 open to all people of the world, um, you know, and, you know, I believe definitely that all people are good at the core yet, you know, uh, there is a system in which, you know, sometimes, um, you know, people don't think about other people when they have their own goals of, you know, greatness and wealth and all of that. So back to that, I saw that in, in Hawaii and that was kind of like my goal to see, yes, you can teach people all kinds of like skills of like how to take care of yourself and the land, how to transform the land. But what kind of skills can you give people to actually have this kind of community that's resilient, that's, um, that can, that can survive in the big, big, big world. And that's how I teach permaculture. A lot of people sometimes are a little bit uh, turned off by the fact that I focus a lot on the social permaculture um, aspect of, of permaculture in general. Because again, working with the land, it's easy. We can learn really fast. It's in the books. Working with ourselves as a community and as a society is like something that we really got to got to look at and that's my approach in general with uh with this work um if people want to get in touch with you do you have a website or facebook page or a phone yeah all of the so myself like if you're typing on google lucian toma you'll find me um in a lot of the pictures i have a um a man bun but i got rid of it oh you cut your hair (laughs) surprise i got too much to do to take care of long hair right now so so if you type lucian toma you can find me um that's t-o-m-a t-o-m-a so lucian is l-u-c-i-a-n no o uh and then t-o-m-a uh or my uh my my brand and business that i'm uh doing all the education is about and for sustainability i'm on facebook on instagram and i have a website um and we also started a website for the desert bloom farm here in here in anza um and and do make sure that if you do a google search for desert bloom farm that you do put anza in there yeah because there's another farm yeah that that comes up first before you guys. yeah 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 well it's it's kind of funny because we 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 didn't know but a lot of people are emailing us, reaching out to us. So we started a conversation. They're looking for the other one, but oh, we started a conversation. We're not going to tell anybody we got the wrong one. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. That's cool. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. No, thank you. That's it. Thank you for joining us for this week's Cup of Fika with Anika. Tune in Wednesdays at 3 p.m. and a replay on Sundays at 1 p.m. If you have any questions or comments for me or my guests, please send an email to programming at koyt971.org and put Fika in the subject line. Enjoy the rest of your day.